Hello and welcome to the history of Vikings. Across Old Norse literature, we can read about encounters with paranormal beings, such as ghosts, zombies, and trolls. These figures appear in Icelandic texts from the 12, 13, and 1400s, but likely denote fantastical activity believed by medieval pagans to have occurred during the Viking Age. In today's Halloween-inspired episode, we'll discuss the medieval monsters of Scandinavia that influenced J.R.R. Tolkien as he crafted otherworldly characters, such as Gollum and the Nazgul, for his famous series, The Lord of the Rings. Joining me to discuss Viking Age ghosts, zombies, trolls, and more is returning guest Dr. Armin Jakobsen. Armin is professor of medieval Icelandic literature at the University of Iceland and a published novelist. In the past, he has been a postman, high school teacher, journalist, and reality TV star. He has invented names for the streets of Reykjavik and mainly loves to write, bearing many obscure publications to his name. Before we get into my conversation with Armin, I want to tell you that we've recently partnered with Medieval Warfare magazine as a way to support this podcast. Medieval Warfare is the highest quality magazine dedicated to warriors and weapons of the Middle Ages. Every issue features specially commissioned artwork and original maps that bring medieval combat to life. If you've ever wanted to support the history of Vikings, please consider doing so by signing up for a digital subscription to Medieval Warfare, which is only 10 bucks every six months. If you choose to sign up, please do so via the link in the description of this episode, as the History of Vikings will receive a commission. You can also get a 10% discount off of your subscription if you use the coupon code VIKINGS at checkout. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Armin Jakobsen. Dr. Armin Jakobsen, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. I'm only too happy to. Well, it's such a pleasure to have you back on the show, Armin. Your last interview about Tolkien's Old Norse influences and sort of the parallels between the mythical worlds of J.R.R. Tolkien and obviously the sort of Old Norse mythological worlds that he very much used to influence his own work. That podcast episode that we recorded last year was very popular indeed, and I'm equally excited to be talking with you today about the topic covered in one of your books titled The Troll Inside You, Paranormal Activity in the Medieval North. So I suppose this is sort of a Halloween-themed episode for those who may choose to celebrate the holiday. But, you know, throughout Old Norse literature, we see these paranormal beings, this genre of characters from trolls to vampires to mound dwellers to the undead to ghosts. And these are, these are all very fascinating and something I must say that I'm not too familiar with. So I guess perhaps the very first question I'd like to ask you is, when we talk about paranormal beings in the medieval North, what do we mean by paranormal? Who are these beings and what purpose do they serve? Well, this is sort of my term paranormal and people use supernatural more and occult and otherworldly and those are fine terms as well and the reason i use paranormal is that it does not sound medieval 
it sounds modern. And of course, anyone who's seen the X-Files will think of the X-Files. And that's indeed what I want people to think. I want them to approach medieval people as if they are people and try to be inside their heads. So I use paranormal deliberately because it's a kind of an anachronistic word. It doesn't really fit. So the reader immediately knows that it's my term and it's not a medieval term. So I'm, I'm kind of trying to destroy the artistic illusion that the scholar, in this case, I am anything else but a modern person. So that, that's why I use the word paranormal. And I use it much like Mulder and Scully use it in the X-Files. Anything that is otherworldly or disturbing and would today be classified as not belonging to the natural world. So this is, in fact, anything might apply. And of course, the biggest types of paranormal events in the Middle Ages in Iceland are encounters with ghosts. And the Icelandic ghost is very unlike 19th century ghost or 20th century ghost, because they are very corporeal. Icelandic medieval ghosts, they will physically attack people. They're not just something people see. You can also feel them. How interesting. So these Icelandic ghosts, I suppose, what purpose do they serve within the genre of medieval Icelandic literature? The protagonists, the people who are coming in contact with them, what do they hope to achieve by, I suppose, deliberately seeking out these ghosts or rather unpleasantly running into them? Well, it's both, actually. Sometimes the ghosts just appear to people. Like there's a famous scene in Laxdalasaga where Guðrún Ósjörsdóttir just meets a ghost. She's going to church and she encounters a ghost. So she's not seeking the ghost, but it just appears to her. And there are also cases where people go to the mounds of the ghosts and try to rob them of the treasures. And that is essentially like Indiana Jones in the Indiana Jones films. If I remember correctly, Indiana Jones is always trying to get some treasure that has been guarded with a multitude of curses and booby traps. And the curses always belong to dead people, and there is a multitude of corpses around the treasures. This is precisely that sort of narrative we have in the Middle Ages, where the hero will enter a mount and try to get a ring or a sword or something magical, sometimes magical, but always a great treasure from the ghost or the zombie or the vampire. I use all words because there are no technical terms for ghosts in the Middle Ages. People just use whatever words they want to, and sometimes they use no words. They just name the figure. That's really interesting to me. So when we see these ghostly figures crop up in Old Norse literature, how are they presented linguistically? What is the term used to describe them? Or is there like a sequence of words that implies that they are sort of ghostly? Yeah, there, there is no particular word. There is the word draugr, which is sometimes used, but not always. So there are very famous ghost narratives, like in Gretisaga, where in Irpigesaga, where the word draugr never appears. And there is the word aftergöngur and remlekar, but they're not used about the figure itself. They're used about what is happening, like aftergöngur is the phenomenon rather than the figure causing the phenomenon. Very often, it's just the name of the undead that is used. 
um, sometimes these undead have a past life in the narrative. And they're, in many cases, they're quarrelsome and problematic people. And sometimes their afterlife has to do with treasure, like egoistic wish to retain your property, like the ghost does not wish other people to have his things. So that's why he is a ghost. And sometimes it's not known why the ghost is still walking, why they are undead. But it's in some cases clearly contagious. So one ghost infects another. And this is very interesting, I guess, for people in 2020, when infections are the most important news items. So there are ghost infections in medieval Iceland. Now, earlier you mentioned sort of getting inside of the mind of the medieval Icelander, which I understand is probably a tricky business. However, are there any sources or pieces of information that may denote how the medieval Icelanders viewed ghosts, what their beliefs were, what the folklore was surrounding them? Did they believe that ghosts very much inhabited the land, or are these strictly figures limited to literature? I use the saga texts, literary sources, and I believe they're excellent sources for what people actually believed happened because they are presented as history, like there are people who are believed to be real in them, and they attempt to be realistic. So if there's a ghost in a medieval narrative, it means that people thought it might happen, that you might meet a ghost, or at least that it could happen 300 years ago. So I think the sagas are excellent sources for how people thought. Of course, folklore is interesting too, but folklore mostly, medieval folklore mostly comes to us through the sagas, like the later folktale collections there from the 17th, 18th, and 19th century. So they're not really medieval sources, but in some cases they are in accordance with these sagas, although there is the big difference that in between, we have the scientific revolution. So we have a changed perspective as to what is real. And when we read the folktale, 19th century folktale collections, it is quite obvious that they're influenced by science, like the categorizations. And this is something I am talking about in The Troll Inside You a lot. The 19th century categorizations of folklorists are essentially based on scientific categorization. So because you can divide animals into cats and dogs, etc., then you can also divide paranormal beings into ghosts and witches and trolls. But this is not necessarily how things are perceived in the Middle Ages. So I think scholarship about the occult or the paranormal, that begins in the 19th century and when we are doing it today, we must be aware of this 19th century inheritance that we are, in fact, looking at the Middle Ages through 19th century lenses. So in the troll book, I try to liberate myself a bit from that and sort of take a different approach to the famous folklorist Jon Arnason. And for one example, he has troll stories, ghost stories, and witch stories. But in the Middle Ages, the primary definitions of trolls are a witch and a ghost. So all witch stories and ghost stories are also troll stories in the Middle Ages. 
So there's no possible separation of the three. So this is important to keep in mind. The words in the Middle Ages may not mean the same as they do today. And they also may not mean the same in every single text. So just to clarify for the listeners at home, you use troll as sort of an umbrella term for these paranormal beings. Is that correct? Yeah, I mostly do that because that's what the sources do. I'm trying to get closer to the sources. And this is something that happened to me accidentally. I wasn't planning on writing on trolls. But when I was looking at the word, it dawned upon me that it doesn't mean what we think it means. It doesn't mean a specific category of paranormal beings, which is how we are used to think about paranormal beings today. As like They fall into specific categories, much like animals. But that isn't really how the medieval people thought about them, I think. And most of the examples of troll in the medieval sources concern either witches or zombies. So, And this is interesting because it's like the relationship between the witch and the zombie is that there is magic involved in both cases. The witch is somebody who uses magic and the undead is alive or walking, not necessarily alive, but walking because of magic. So in a way, we have a kind of Frankenstein relationship. I use that in one of my articles. Like Frankenstein is the name of the scientist, but in the 20th century, it's also used as the name of the monster, of the beast. And this angers many people, but I think it's splendid because this is exactly how medieval people thought. A troll would be both the scientist who awakens the monster and the monster itself. Well, in regard to witches or seeresses, of course, one is reminded of the famous poem Volaspa, the famous Eddic poem, The Seeress's Prophecy, where Odin consults the, the seeress. But then, of course, you know, again, when we're talking about witches and seeresses, are these characters that existed in real life? I know in Viking Age and pre Christian Scandinavian burials, we have found, you know, the remains of female figures buried with their famous metal staffs and all sorts of other objects denoting magic. So I think that's interesting. You know, these characters, they seem to exist in literature, certainly in mythology, but also real life. I mean, I, I don't know if it would be appropriate to call those real people witches, seeresses, vulvas, whatever you want to call them. Well, Odin, he is himself a witch, and this is explained in England because I, that I use a lot, but Odin is the main witch. and. I use witch also for man, because being a witch is something men practice as well, but it's always seen as unmanly. So there's no escaping gender bending if you're a witch. And as to the relationship between real life and literature, that's not really something I look into much, because I'm not really sure we can go there. Like, my what I try to do is to go from the texts and analyze the thought processes behind the texts, but whether archaeological remains can prove any of this, uh, that's not certain to me. Like, archaeological evidence is always very ambiguous because it's not very detailed, you know. Indeed. And it's always multiple interpretation. But given the predominance of witches in the literature, and the strong belief in magic that is found everywhere in Icelandic medieval texts, 
it seems to me very unlikely that there were not also people who thought they were witches. It just seems more logical to assume that some medieval people would have felt that they were witches. And, you know, as to what their actual powers were, I have to remain neutral on that question. Like, can they change shapes or something? I I wouldn't dare to say anything about that. Indeed, indeed. Well, and sort of that ambiguity may, in a way, you know, of course, we wish we had more information and more specific details. But but in a way, that may make these stories, these narratives more exciting because of their ambiguity. Yeah. Some of them delight in ambiguity, I think. For example, in Ailsa, Ail's ancestors are said to be shapeshifters, but it's never explained what a shapeshifter is and what is actually happening when they change shapes. Like, are they just really angry or are they actually transforming into an animal, a wolf or something like that? And I think this is deliberate on part of the author. I think the author is writing both for an audience who believes in the latter and for an audience that would be skeptical. Well, Armin, I want to ask a question about mound dwellers. One story that comes to mind is a poem from the saga of Hervor and Hadrek, yeah. uh, known as The Waking of Angantyr. Angantyr was, of course, the famous berserk. And the female heroine, Hervor, has to awake her undead father from his burial mound to obtain the mythical sword Tyrfing. Grave mounds are something that we know existed, certainly. We can see evidence of them today across the medieval north, and this is something that the people would have been acutely aware of. I guess, again, you know, whether we choose to discuss this question in terms of folklore, the literary sources, I'm just curious as to what role grave mounds play in sort of your study of paranormal activity in the medieval north. Well, I don't talk to them much in the book, but I'm currently working on a study of Hardarsaga. That is a very interesting grave mound scene. And Hardar is like an Indiana Jones figure who just enters the mound just because he's treasure hunting. He he wants to get the treasure of Sote the Viking. And Sote the Viking is, of course, very interesting for me because he's described as being a great troll while he's living, but even more so when he was dead. So I think he exemplifies both types of troll. He was a great magician when he lived, but then he became a great undead when he was dead. And he's also related to Thorgerður Hörkabrúður, who is a mythical figure like a goddess that is ignored by Snorri in the Edda of Snorri, but is present in many of other literary texts. So he is, in a way, he's the brother of a god. So he is kind of example of the pagan past. Like he represents the pagan past both as a god, as a magician, and as an undead. And uh, Herder is going there to accompany his friend, who he has vowed to open the mound. And Herder just goes along. And in the end, it's he who goes into the mound and fights Soti. And that's three very important objects from him. One of them is a ring. I don't think it's a ring of power, though. But the ring and the sword continue to be important in the story. And they have earthquakes. They don't have actual booby traps in the mount, but they have a foul stench that kills people. Oh, wow. So it's a compelling narrative. And Hörder is also helped by Odin. He meets Odin on the way, 
Odin is disguised just as a regular man called Björn, and he gives him a sword that he can use to stick into the mount, and that helps breaking Sotis' magic. Sotis' magic has worked so that the mount, they duck, but every morning it was as if they had done nothing, so the work is always in the same place. But when Hörder pushes the sword into the crack, it remains open, but it still takes them many days to open the mount. And they're clearly seeking glory, but they're also seeking treasure. So Soti would not have bothered anyone if he'd been left in peace, but they choose to go and attack him. And one of the reasons is that Hörder feels Soti's evil, and they speak about this in a verse, that Soti is evil. But in the in the Hervor saga scene, the Hervor, I think, actually says to her father, it's not becoming for a ghost to carry a, an excellent weapon. The, oh, interesting. Yeah, so it's the selfish of the ghost. It's the, the ghost is essentially selfish. They refuse to leave room for the rest of us. They're supposed to go. They're supposed to leave Earth and not take up more space. But that's what they refuse to do. They keep taking up space. But that's like what the ghost does. They're essentially selfish. So the ghost in Icelandic medieval narrative is usually connected with the pagan and the evil. And they're not, even if they're sometimes ancestors, they're never all that nice and usually dangerous. Well, I'm I'm very curious, Armin. I must ask this question as to how you became involved with this study of Again, what you call the paranormal activity of the medieval North. I mean, one of the great pleasures of my life has been the opportunity to do this podcast, The History of Vikings, and have the opportunity to speak with such an illustrious cast of scholars, scholars whose expertise ranges from Viking activity in Francia to warrior women, and of course, Norse mythology, to battle tactics of the Viking Age, medieval Icelandic sagas. And your subject is very interesting to me, and that's why I was so excited to have you on the podcast today to talk about it. How did you first become involved with this sort of, again, paranormal activity of the medieval North? Well, I recently met a friend of mine who's a sociologist, and he said to me, you know, I I told him what I was researching, and he said, I've always been so interested in your studies because they concern social issues like class and age and children and old people. But now you've moved away from that to the paranormal, he said. And I said, no, I haven't, because there's nothing, society and the paranormal are so intertwined. There's nothing more social than the paranormal. And this is indeed, will be clear to anyone who reads my book, The Troll Inside You. It does concern all of these things, like class, age, gender, they're all there. They're all very important for paranormal encounters. And I think also, well, narratives about paranormal encounters, or the fantastic, as it's sometimes called, they're very often accused of escapism. But I think there's no escapism there. I think these narratives are always essentially dealing with our world, but in a different mode than the realistic mode. They're just doing it in a different way. But they always concern social issues very strongly, no less strongly than realistic narrative. What is interesting about, of course, the sagas of Icelanders is that they're both realistic and fantastic in the modern sense. And there's no difference between the so-called classical and the so-called post-classical sagas. Every single 
Saga turns out to have a variety of paranormal encounters. Well, almost every one of them. There's one or two that doesn't have much. But the famous ones, Njald Saga, Laxdala Saga, Eirbyggja Saga, Egil Saga, they're often seen as the most realistic. And they are, but they also have, Kisla Saga is one, they also have a multitude of paranormal encounters. They have witches, and they have ghosts, and they have everything else. And I think, like, in a way, the scholar who has influenced me most is Ernest Jones, who was famous as the biographer of Sigmund Freud. And he was a psychologist, like Freud, of course. He wrote a book about the nightmare. So what he's interested in, what happens in people's brains. And this is also what I'm interested in. I'm less interested in paranormal beings than I am in the regular people who encounter them. In a way, yes. I find that is fascinating to stop looking at the monster and look at the person who encounters the monster. And this is something I do in the book in uh, analysis of Bergbothafter, where there are two people who meet a very vague monster. You only see their eyes. It's a bit like Sauron in The Lord of the Rings. It's just huge eyes, nothing else. And what I look at when I'm analyzing this narrative is not this monster, but the two men and how they are affected, what happens to them. And they are, in fact, I think, our representatives. They, they are the representatives of humanity facing the monster. And I think that's always a very important part of these narratives, like what happens to the people who see the monster. Well, in many societies, and indeed our modern society here in the year 2020, I think paranormal beings are often viewed as these harrowing, negative, yeah. inherently evil figures. Was it like that to the medieval Icelanders who were you know, interpreting these figures. Of course, you mentioned ghosts being inherently selfish and not wanting to leave room for the living people. But I understand that that term troll encompasses many different types of paranormal figures. So I'm just wondering, are these figures seen as inherently evil, inherently bad, inherently negative? Well, there is always ambiguity, and both then and now. Like, there's always this at least tiny ambiguity, like, are they good? Are they bad? How can we tell? And it's very interesting to looking at modern paranormal encounters because, for example, space invaders, UFOs, they were extremely popular in the USA after the Second World War and until the 90s. But I think there are far fewer sightings now. Like, they too belong to a certain age. It's, it changes. The threat keeps changing depending on society. And there were mostly people who were terrified of space invaders, but there were also people who wanted to meet them. Yes. <laughs> and this is, I think, what happens in any age. There is always the chance that this paranormal being might help you in some way. So we have, of course, several instances of paranormal beings that are just evil, but sometimes there's ambiguity. You know, we don't really know what they're like. So, yeah, uh, troll is an essentially negative concept, I think. It's hardly ever used about people don't say, I'm a troll. They say, you're a troll. That's how it's mainly used. There are other paranormal concepts that are neutral, like elf. I think that's essentially neutral in the Middle Ages, sometimes bad, sometimes not. There is the possibility of the good supernatural helper. And For example, in this narrative I mentioned in Harda Saga, Odin, 
does nothing but help Hörder. He is not negative in any way. But in other accounts, he is very negative. We have like a variety of opinions about these beings. Indeed. Well, of course, anybody who has studied even briefly the Old Norse Icelandic sources will know that there are many parallels across Old Norse literature to the works of J.R.R. Tolkien, whom, of course, you and I had another episode about this last year. We know he was uh, very much influenced by them. I'm curious about the relationship between the paranormal activity of the medieval North and J.R.R. Tolkien's sort of paranormal figures, if we can call them that, within his mythological worlds. Is this an aspect of the Old Norse literary world that Tolkien very much used to influence his own sort of ghostly troll figures? You know, is this something that is very evident there? Yeah, I think he's very influenced by his reading. And you have strong similarities between Undead in the sagas and in his book. There is an encounter in The Lord of the Rings with a Barrowite, and this Barrowite. It's not unlike any mound dweller you might meet in the Old Norse sagas. They also guard that treasure. And we have the paths of the dead in the last third of the book. And that also is the kind of undead that could very well fit into an Old Norse setting. But in a way, Tolkien's obsession with death is, is far, and the undead is, is greater than that. Although these two are the most obvious examples, there is also the very nature of the ring and how it confers eternal life, but it doesn't really confer eternal life. So the people who have the ring, they're not really immortal, but they go on living in a kind of an afterlife. And that is, I think, something that is both influenced by old Norse sources and his own period. Like the 19th century was extremely romantic. There was a huge interest in the paranormal and in doubles, and in seances, and all things spirits, everything like that. And I think that also has a kind of an impact on him. So we have Gollum, for example, who is kind of an undead, and we have the nine wraiths, ring wraiths, and they are also very ghostly figures. And we have the hero himself, Frodo, who in the end is kind of undead. And I remember one of the criticism of the book when it originally came appeared was that none of the good people died, none of the heroes died. But in fact, a lot of them die, not in the regular sense, not in the overt sense, but they have to go, they have to leave Middle Earth. And the book ends with several of them leaving on a ship to uh, another country. So, So in a way, it is at least symbolic and metaphorical death that he is describing. And there's no possibility for Frodo to continue his life in Middle-earth and in the Shire after the things he has gone through. So so in a way, the book is describing a kind of both undeath and death. It's a huge part of the story. And, well, Tolkien was a, a reader of Greta Saga and other sagas that have battles with ghosts. So I, th- I, th- I think there's no question that he is partly influenced by them. But of course, Death also figured strongly in his own life. He lost both his parents in his childhood, and he lost most of his friends in, in youth. So, so he, I think that personal experience would have been influential in the book's kind of death theme. 
Well, of course, this year, as we are all still in lockdown, I know that many people are very saddened at the thought that they won't be able to go out and celebrate this Halloween as perhaps they had in years past. And perhaps if you're somebody who chose not to celebrate the holiday and you just want to learn more about the paranormal activity of the medieval North, I highly recommend uh, Dr. Armin Jakobsen's book, The Troll Inside You. But Armin, what other sources would you recommend to the listeners that they might be able to read for themselves in hopes to learn more about this fascinating subject? Well, most of the sagas themselves exist in translations. All of them, Greti Saga and Hirpike Saga and Njalsa, they have they are easily accessible in English. And they all have paranormal encounters of some kind. One of the first people we meet in Njalsa is, uh, is a witch called Svanur. So then we know that it's not going to be a regular, realistic narrative that we are reading. Yes. And so, and, and these paranormal beings, they speak and they haunt the text. They add to its attraction in my, my mind. It's very strange that, you know, I have never, Halloween, what didn't exist in Iceland when I was growing up. So I knew nothing about it. But now, like having written this book, I love Halloween because it means my, my work gets prominence. It's interesting. So there's a lot of things to read from Iceland about the undead. Without a doubt, without a doubt. And uh, for everyone listening, of course, I will provide a link in the description of this episode to Dr. Armin Jakobsen's book, The Troll Inside You. I've read it myself, and I highly, highly recommend it. Well, Armin, it has been an absolute pleasure speaking with you today on the podcast, again, on sort of this Halloween special episode of The History of Vikings. Thank you so much again for joining me today. Thank you for having me. It's In a way, it's always the greater honor to be asked again. That means you weren't too tedious the first time. <laughs> yes, indeed. Thank you for listening to the History of Vikings. If you've enjoyed today's show and would like to support the podcast, please consider doing so by signing up for a digital subscription to Medieval Warfare magazine. For only $10 every six months, you will receive bi-monthly issues of, in my opinion, the best history magazine on the market. In addition to this, you'll be directly supporting the podcast. If you choose to sign up, please do so via the link in the description of this episode, as the History of Vikings will receive a commission. You can also get a 10% discount off your subscription if you use the coupon code VIKINGS at checkout. Thank you so much again for listening. Please join us here again for another episode. <laughs> <laughs>